This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by Hospira Incorporated, the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, Dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing healthcare costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today I'm speaking with Theodore J. Iwashna, MD, PhD to discuss his article published in the August Critical Care Medicine. His article is entitled, The Incomplete Infrastructure for Interhospital Patient Transfer. Dr. Iwashina is an assistant professor of internal medicine at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. His specialties include pulmonary and critical care medicine. Dr. Iwashina, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on the program. So it was fascinating to see this article come up to the table of contents because you know, we're often focusing on things like sepsis and ARDS, but the transfer of critically ill patients really involves anybody at, at any level of critical care, whether you're sending or receiving, and it seems to be increasing in frequency in our daily practices in the intensive care unit. Absolutely, and part of what's made this an interesting area to study is that it feels like it touches on the heart of what critical care medicine is. But I feel like as a specialty, we've made the bargain that we can provide better care for patients by thinking carefully about how we organize the care of those patients as opposed to diving really deeply into a single organ system, right? And there's nothing intrinsically special about the ICU from a pathology perspective. What's fascinating about it is that by being more attentive to organizing the care of patients inside the hospital, we can do better for them. And it it led pretty naturally it felt like to studying how we transfer patients between hospitals because, as you say, as a practicing intensivist or really as a fellow, this is a huge fraction of what we do. And I wanted to ask the question, to what extent are we doing it well and to what extent can we do it even better? It was interesting that you're, the way you, you provided some structure to this as far as definitions of, of what we do on a daily basis. And I, I don't know that's really a, is this a foundation for doing objective research on, on the quality of transfers and, and how we can make quality improvements in the processes and standardization? It's very much what we hope to do is sort of provide a way for thinking about this at multiple levels. So asking what can I, as at the University of Michigan, an accepting physician do to improve my practice, and what are the ramifications that has potentially for other patients? What could someone at another hospital that wants to refer patients do better? But then how do we think about this systematically, and how can we provide a structure for thinking through how our individual actions aggregate up into a system that either works well or, as we suggest in the review, perhaps not as well as it could for patients? And certainly we're getting more and more um, aware of problems with transfers, particularly with things like Amtala and, and fines being levied for, for not being cooperative with transfers. But you alluded in, in your, your, your manuscript that a lot of the decisions to transfer patients, you know, a lot of it seems to be it's a patient safety or a patient outcome to make the, tr- the decision for transfer. But those relationships of where you transfer your destination isn't necessarily a patient-focused decision, that it's related to some organizational or, as you put it, non-patient-centered priorities. And clearly that's intended to be a a gentle euphemism to allow this to go into print. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think when we, what we 
found, I think, unexpectedly was that this doesn't look like a place where data is particularly driving the transfer decisions, that instead hospitals seem to get into these organizational routines where they kind of, I'm a hospital and I send to hospital B. That's what I do. And you perhaps retrospectively rationalize that or one perhaps retrospectively rationalizes that as I'm sure for my patients that's the best choice, but often it seems like it's perhaps just the most familiar choice. I think the you know, most compelling data we have is from patients who suffered from uh, acute myocardial infarction. And AMI is a great condition, right, for which we have really good objective quality metrics. The NIH has spent a ton of money thinking about how you measure that. It's clearly a critical illness and one that matters for us. And it's one that, unlike many of the medical critical care conditions, people are really good at diagnosing AMI. So it's unambiguous, and we can follow patients quite clearly. So we looked at patients who were admitted to non-revascularization hospitals who were eventually transferred to revascularization hospitals. So this wasn't asking the question of, did they need to go? Everybody moved. And it just said, when they were sent, were they sent to the hospital that seemed to provide the highest quality care? You're going to say to me, well, how do you measure high quality care? Well, AMI is a condition with about 18% 30-day mortality, right? A lot of people die, but there's huge variation. Some hospitals have 12% risk-adjusted mortality. Some hospitals have 25% risk-adjusted mortality. And so for many of us who live in areas where there's more than one hospital around, people face real options. So we asked, how much is proximity driving that, and how much is the objective quality of the hospital? And we found that proximity, and even more than proximity, wherever you sent the patients last year was much more important than the objective uh, differences in quality, which are potentially substantial. And, and you seem to indicate, too, that some of these interpersonal relationships or, or who you've had established relationships is also driving us over the outcomes as well. And I think they are. And what we found in a bunch of ethnographic work and in the literature was, frustratingly, it's not like physicians are making these choices that the way the decision is structured is it seems to be much more, when I work at a given place, that's where I send patients. That it's not that physicians are saying, yeah, 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 I know the data, but I actually know Bob's on service over there, and I know Bob's gonna provide spectacular care for my patients. Instead, when I work at this hospital, they tell me this is where we transfer our patients, so that's where they get transferred. It seems to be that these relationships are happening at the institutional level, not at the physician-to-physician level. And so it's harder to argue than that's being driven because physicians have good information about quality. Instead, it seems like it's much more that people sort of get in this routine and perhaps the downside of the sort of protocolized care we spent so much time going. You know, for our patients, they just go, they go down this pathway and they end up at somebody else at one particular hospital. And we're perhaps less reflective about whether that's the right choice for all patients or particularly for the patient in front of us. Now, you provide some statistics that, and that I thought were reasonably amazing. You said 1 in 20 Medicare patients admitted to one hospital's ICU will be transferred to another hospital's ICU, and between one-third and basically one-half of MI patients admitted to non-revascularization hospitals will be transferred to another hospital. That was a surprisingly large number to me. And do we anticipate that we're going to see with increased regionalization of care and, and trying to to consolidate expensive care, obviously these trends are going to continue to increase. Um, you know, I think so. It's 
transfer has clearly become more and more feasible. We, as a profession and working with EMS, have gotten quite good um, at making transfer a safe process for given patients. So it used to be that you put them in the ambulance and it's wherever the ambulance could get them, that's great. Now we have the ability to have choices. Indeed, if you live in a major urban area, then there are often many hospitals within a mile or two of each other, and so you get to make a conscious choice. And that's not something we necessarily had in the past. That opens up real possibilities to then make sure patients are going to something that's an evidence-based choice, a data-driven choice about where the best quality is. Um, the question is, do we as a, as a profession have the will to make sure that that is a data-driven choice? Because if we don't make that choice, my fear is that other people are going to start making that choice for us. And we know they'll be looking at numbers, but we f I fear they're not going to be looking at patient outcome numbers. They may be looking at other cost numbers. Does the availability of, of critical care transport, I mean, um, there was a paper that came out probably 10 years out of the University of Michigan that looked at downstream revenue of aeromedical transport systems. I mean, um, you know, any major urban area has, you know, sometimes eight to a dozen air transport systems that are flying patients left and right um, at a tremendous cost. Does that does that machinery, you think, kind of grease the wheels of this to say, well, now it's so easy to transfer patients that I'll just send a patient from hospital A to hospital B because, you know, I've got this, this aircraft vendor sitting in, in front of our emergency department? It certainly might. You know, I don't know of good data on that. The thing that struck me when we were doing interviews with folks at community hospitals around Michigan, many of whom are potentially in that catchment area of that, that same service we were just talking about, is these were docs and nurses talking about how frustratingly hard it is to find good critical care transport services. And there's essentially no data out there on what kind of critical care transport services are available in the community or the amount of variation across communities. You know, there are so few people, Chris Seymour out of Pitt, who's doing very innovative work looking at this. But on the whole, we don't know when people can get EMS care or can get ACLS transport. We don't know how good that is or how available it is. This is part of the infrastructure that I was talking about in the paper that feels like it's lacking. We'd like to imagine, and I think for those of us who sit at tertiary care centers and feel like we have an unending deluge of patients coming at us from transfers, that it's trivial to get a patient from one hospital to another. But I don't know that community hospitals experience that same easiness. I have to, you know, tie this into sepsis because we clearly know that sepsis is one of the leading cause of deaths in the United States, and certainly whether you're you know, a pediatric, medical, or surgical intensivist, this impacts our patients dramatically. Uh, and there was and one for which it looks like there's wide variation across hospitals and their processes of care and probably their quality of care. In, in sending hospitals and, and receiving hospitals. Um, how do you hardwire something like that into the transfer process? I mean, if somebody comes into a sending hospital and, you know, we need to volume resuscitate somebody, get timely antibiotics, you know, source control, um, endpoints of resuscitation, how do you make those variables, you know, come into play uh, before the transfer or during the transfer? And you brought in, you used the word I thought was interesting, so negotiating the transfer as part of this process. You know, I think it's, it's there's both a sending side and a receiving side. And since I, I sit at the receiving side, let me start and be more critical of my side first. Um, you know, we... You call a cath lab and you say, I've got an FD elevation MI. They say, how soon can we open up the door for you? 
that has not been my experience necessarily of the way many of the, the great institutions uh, cr of critical care in this country necessarily deal with severe sepsis, right? Um, that cardiology and stroke patients, trauma centers have evolved to very much a send us your poor, you're hungry, you're broken, we'll, try, we'll do our best to fix them. I don't know that all institutions have that same response for sepsis or ARDS. Certainly some do, some are trying, and there's a responsiveness component of this that has not always been as much as it should be. That being said, um, sending hospitals also need to be able to receive it, right? If you don't get the EKG and you don't see the ST elevation MI, doesn't matter how receptive the cath lab is, that patient's not going to go to it. And we have a lot of suspicion that severe sepsis is underdiagnosed and underrecognized in the, computer, in the community and under-resuscitated. Certainly, the timeframes for severe sepsis from Dr. Rivers' trial are more generous than timeframes for best practice for stroke or MI. So if we can get strokes and MIs successfully stabilized and moved and getting definitive care, we ought to be able to do the same for severe sepsis if we have a will to address a problem that's probably four times bigger than uh, the heart attack problem is. So a patient gets transferred for, say, ECMO or for a major trauma patient, even though the patient doesn't necessarily get a splenectomy or doesn't necessarily require going on an ECMO circuit, these patients, by being transferred, and, and I, don't, I don't like the term perhaps a more disciplined uh, environment, uh, but a, a um, higher acuity uh, critical care unit, these patients are having better outcomes even though they don't benefit from getting revascularized or going on ECMO or having a splenectomy. Yeah, it appears quite clear that the benefits of transfer um, where they've been looked at are not limited to just the particular procedure. So patients who don't get the, you know, in the CSER trial who don't get ECMO still seem to do better. Um, patients who go to or transfer to stroke centers seem to do better even if they don't benefit from thrombolytics, which is much, you know, maybe a lesson that the trauma centers can teach us, right, that you, you can get better if you do something a lot and you really focus on it. I just wonder how how do you where do you place all these patients? I mean, you started your your manuscript talking about you know a lot of the ICUs now are are being um, um, obstructed uh, by having non critically ill patients there because we have difficulty in in getting dispositions or getting people discharged to things like skilled nursing facilities, LTACs, uh, home health, due to you know. Um, either their medical condition or absence of resources, and now we kind of seem like we're turning on the spigot and getting just all these patients, some of them who certainly need high level of critical care. Other ones, uh, the diagnosis gets refined, and we find out they don't necessarily need to be in ICU. Um, how do you manage all of that capacity? I mean, it's certainly a real problem, and, you know, Mike Hal taught me the phrase intensive care unit outflow obstruction. Yeah, I like I that. Just... I'm attending up there in the ICU today, and I've got somebody who's on uh, who's on their third day of waiting for a floor bed. So it's certainly a real problem. But I don't think it's a real problem in the sense that it's a incapacity to care for these patients. It's a problem in the sense of that we don't have a will to prioritize our care for the patients. What we're saying is we'd rather devote the resource, the ICU resource, to not having to expedite floor transfers than to caring for critically ill patients. That may be a system-level decision we're happy to make, or it may be a place where we say, really? Um, I know of few good trauma centers or few good cath labs that routinely will turn away, say, an ST elevation MI, 
because there's somebody in the CCU waiting for floor transfer. They tend to say, our mission is to take care of cath lab patients, and we're going to get that patient who's waiting to go to the floor to an alternative level of care. So, yes, as currently operationalized, um, full, full ICU is certainly a problem. I don't think that means it's an unsolvable problem. I think it's, this is potentially a reason for us to focus our resources on operational excellence and making sure we can keep our throughput up. Is there any role either on a government level or through a contractual method of if you're sending a patient to a tertiary or quaternary hospital because they need that level of care, but now you're getting this ICU outflow obstruction because of lower acuity patients taking floor beds, uh, should there be a organization of a, a transfer back to the local community hospital to provide the lower acuity care? Does that need to be hardwired into our system? Um, I think if it's certainly an obvious way for individual systems to be able to move forward to sort of negotiate those prompt return um, prompt return procedures. So again, um, I. I hate having to refer to cardiology as the paragon of sort of things that are done right, but they're ahead of us in at least adult pulmonary medical critical care here. Um, there have been several large clinical trials of safety of post-PCI transferring patients right back to the hospital that they sent in. So you say, look, um, you send me your patient because they need a cath. I can provide them a cath. I can recover them from that, and then you can have them back afterwards. I think that also let you put frankly on the table the fact that, you know, these patients are particularly hospitals bread and butter. And it would be nice not to have to have a community hospital choosing between what's doing between doing right for the patient and having a revenue stream sufficient to keep their lights on. So I think, yeah, being careful in negotiating that says, look, when I'm doing the tertiary care, medical critical care that I'm the only person or we're the only facility that we can do, we'll keep them here. But once they're back in a regime that you can take care of them, let's send them back to you. And I think that reverse triage has enormous potential. And those arrangements are made in an a priori kind of contractual type setting? You know, I've seen them done um, in both ways. I've seen them done um, at an individual level where you say, look, I'm taking the patient and I promise to send it back. And I've seen systems arrange those Particularly, I've seen interventional pulmonary systems, um, like Dan Sturman had developed a nice system, that basically said, look, we'll send them, send them to us for 48 hours. If we can do something for intervention, and which is something you really can't decide until you're able to get the bronchoscope in the patient, we'll keep them, fix them, and then once they're floor ready, we'll send it back to you. And if after 48 hours we say, no, there's no intervention here, we'll send it back to you. If you have a hospital that's sending a patient in good faith because they feel like they need the help, not that's trying to dump the patient. I think those are eminently negotiable uh, practices that a legal structure exists to make possible. People just need to do the work to make them happen. We're talking about a lot of different transitions of patient care from the referring hospital to the receiving hospital and, and maybe even on the back end as well. And you've given these names in your manuscript, uh, um, front-end discontinuity risk and back-end discontinuity risk. And as well as the issues of transfer mortality, you've already mentioned that you know the safety of, of transfer is you know now these are we have you know, these mobile ICUs both in the air and on the ground. Um, but how do we mitigate the risk both on the front end and the back end? You know, moving the patient from the local hospital to the you know the university hospital and back again. So I think it's absolutely an important risk that one needs to be proactive in managing it. 
but I'd say in a world of work hours reform, every patient I take care of has a fair amount of discontinuity as part of their care. So I think we need to manage it in the same way that we need to be very attentive to successful handoff strategies for our residents who can seemingly work fewer and fewer continuous hours every night. Do you have any informatics tools or just hardwired the discipline of this is how we do these handovers? Because, I mean, when you're dealing with an outside hospital, I mean, we've all gotten that call as well. I just came on and, you know, I don't know much about this patient, and but the family wants them transferred. And, you know, you really can't say no to something like that. Um, and you end up going through the charts and you find all kinds of little secrets. Um, that's so, I that's mean, I frustrating. That's certainly true. I, I confess you may recall back to your training the patient who also when you're the night admitting resident on the floor who gets sent out of the unit with a oh, I'm just covering him but I got told I got to send him out to you too uh, sorry I don't know anything can you read the chart yourself so these have been known to occur even at great tertiary care centers yeah. um, I think you know that uh, there's a combination of informatics to get the finger the tools and the information readily available at your fingertips but there's also a sense of professional excellence and pride that ensures that transferring the care of your patients safely is an essential part of your job because it is. It's interesting. We had a podcast we did um, a few weeks ago with Dr. Pearl, who is the CEO of Kaiser Permanente, and he points out that you could go to, you know, basically to any country on any continent and pull out your ATM card and, and be able to get financial information about your bank account and your balance, but yet you can... You know, particularly like our situation here is we have a VA right next door. You could be a VA patient and fall on the sidewalk between the two buildings, be taken into the into the university medical center, and we can't get EKGs next door, um, which makes access to that information very difficult. But, you know, we talk about, you know, resident work hours and work hour restrictions. I think what a lot of people forget was that same document said that in order to prove patient safety is we have to have appropriate transitions of care and handovers. And uh, we focus on the... Uh, the time off, but we, we failed to focus appropriately on how well we do these handovers. Now, how would the patients respond to being bounced around, you know, from hospital A to hospital B and, and potentially eventually to hospital C, which may be a rehab hospital? Are there ways that families approach this systematically or how we should approach it to, to make this less traumatic for families and, and have them have greater confidence in the providers? So I think it's absolutely a real thing, and it's one of the things we frustratingly have less data than I'd like to know. So that's, you know, so the scientist in me says, look, I have to tell you, I don't actually know. So let the practicing clinician say, well, so we have to make decisions where we don't know the right answer all the time, and here's how I guess. So I think the first thing is if you present it to a patient as, look, you'll get exactly the same care, um, but would you like to do that farther away where nobody knows you, or would you like to do that safe where we can take care of you? Yeah, nobody wants to move just for the sake of moving. So the question is, can we provide patients, you know, sort of a reasonable, informed decision? In a world of closed ICUs, people are moving out across teams all the time anyway to get into critical care. It is my suspicion that kind of careful and best practice family-centered care can alleviate a lot of these concerns, but it's an empirical question uh, to which we don't have the answer. I know some of my colleagues are sure that families find it just really traumatic to have to move across hospitals. I feel like not so much. I feel like at some level a core competency of intensivists in the modern era is the ability to rapidly establish rapport and trust with families and patients and people they've never met before. It's what I have to do all day, every day, and I think I have 
it's not necessarily different if the patient comes to the ER and I've never met him before or if the patient comes in on the ambulance and I've never met him before. I think what's interesting is that you comment, and I think a lot of the public would think that we move patients based on some military-style triage pattern that this hospital has this capability, and when we exceed this capability, we go to the next level of care, kind of like the, the forward surgical hospitals and, and that the military uses. But you It would be great if it were like that, right? It would make us feel so cool and like we were in MASH and stuff. Well, and, and I think that's what the public's perception is, is how we move patients. But you point out that it's more like Facebook social networking. Yeah, you know, we, when, I, when I first started some of these um, sort of network analyses looking at the transfers of patients between hospitals, I expected it at some level to be just sort of a straight tree going up and down. Unsurprisingly, the American healthcare system has not spontaneously organized it into itself into a clear, logical pattern. Um, and in fact, is what we see of lots of patients going all over the place, um, hospitals sending to a diverse set of patients, a diverse set of hospitals, even if they for seemingly similar patients. And that what we've got is a system that doesn't look like it's well planned, which is perhaps not surprising since we wouldn't be having this conversation if there were anybody planning it or there were data out there um, that people have been using for decades. Instead, we live in a world where things have changed. We've developed that technology to move patients back and forth between hospitals relatively safely, and we've developed the technology to allow us to evaluate the quality of care that hospitals provide in a way that's now statistically robust and pretty reliable. So now we have the possibilities to re-engineer a system that takes advantage of this potential patient mobility to guide patients towards high-quality care in a way that didn't exist 20 years ago when a lot of these routines got laid down. So you're going to re-engineer this system, hypothetically. How should, we, how should we design it? I mean, should there be universal guidelines based on disease conditions, based on the capacity of the hospital, how we move patients, um, whether somebody should go by ground or by air? I mean, certainly with all these inefficiencies, we've got inefficient movement of patients, overconsumption of resources, increasing costs, perhaps some um, poor outcomes involved in that as well. Um, and if we do design a system, engineer a system, then who should design it and, and who, should, um, who should regulate it? Should it be you know, something like the SCCM or another professional organization or should it be the government or the payers? How does that re-engineered system look to you? You know, I am skeptical that I am smart enough or that the political will exist to just let me tell you, well, we're going to knock everything down and start from the ground up. I think a more interesting question is, what are the resources we can use that make local action possible that let us advocate well for our own patients? And I think there's a combination there of awareness and data. So let me talk about the data first. Right? So 10 years ago, to get a reliable mortality figure for how an individual hospital provides hospital provided care for even a, an easy-to-diagnose condition like MI was essentially impossible, and the numbers that were out there were junk. That's not true anymore. And the advent of the electronic medical records that have become so ubiquitous a part of our lives mean that if there's a will, it's easy to provide great, high-quality, risk-adjusted data that you can just go to the web and download. You know, the VA has been a real leader here. If you go to the VA's website, you can download Apache 4 quality, gold standard quality, risk adjustment, risk adjusted outcomes for a host of conditions 
and a host of complications for every VA hospital in the country. And the VA has said, look, it's not our job to hide this data. It's our job to show people what, they, what they've got and let them make informed choices. So I think the first thing you need to do is say, can we, who, when we're not practicing in the VA, part of my practice is in the VA where it's really easy to do this, but when we're not practicing in the VA, do we have that same commitment to transparency and honesty about our outcomes that we can use good, technologically sophisticated systems to give people the data to let them make choices? And then you say, can we present that to folks in a way that makes it easy for them to incorporate it in their practice? Because currently it's kind of a hassle, even if you know where this data is, and I know where the data lives, to download that data and say, okay, for this condition, I need to make these choices. For some things, like sepsis, the data doesn't exist yet, and we just haven't chosen to invest in that science, but we're five years of investment away from having really good sepsis and ARDS outcome data than quality metrics that would be available to people. We just have to choose to get it. And then you say, once that data is available, can you find ways to incorporate it into the practice of physicians when they're making those referral decisions? And it's not like good hospitals change on a week-to-week basis. You know, you say, okay, it's Valentine's Day, and every year on Valentine's Day, I look up the numbers for sort of my potential referring hospitals, and I look at, for the conditions I commonly treat, who's got the best data. And so I think that combination of making the data freely available and then letting physicians act on the data in the best interest of their their patients in the same way that we ask physicians to act on the data in the best interest of their patients all the time has a potential to really, in a decentralized way, move patients um, towards the best hospitals without us needing to take a very top-down or bureaucratic and and potentially problematic decision point. It's a huge problem. I mean, uh, listening to you talk, I'm thinking, you know, for instance, you know, trauma systems vary by state. I mean, trauma is probably handled much differently in Michigan than it is in North Carolina or Texas. Uh, So you've got the geographical variation, but then you've also got these issues of the American Heart Association has pretty unified approaches on how they approach, as you point out, you know, coronary ischemia and reperfusion issues. And so you've got all these different disease entities, different specialties involved, and in, and in, in geographical variations. And, and with the geographical variations come resource management. I mean, somebody's in rural Oklahoma. How do you get them from a 50-bed hospital to uh, a tertiary hospital? So certainly I'm sure this is going to be a continued life's work in trying to solve these issues for you. You know, I, I hear what you're saying about it, but i got to say I'm also, I, yes, I think the last 20% is going to be hard. But we don't live in rural Oklahoma anymore. You know, the U.S. is overwhelmingly a large urban country. And for those of us who live in big metropolitan areas, we're not talking about a 150-mile ride to the next hospital. And I think we shouldn't let the challenge of getting the system work uniformly for those last 20% prevent us from getting the first 80% done. Well, on the other side of that, what does competition do? I mean, as far as if you've got two two cardiac centers that are four or five miles apart and how they compete for patients. Um, that can result in some perhaps inappropriate behavior in regards to data management and, and, uh, and, and competition. Um, competition is never bad, and certainly, in my opinion, I think it improves quality and reduces costs. But uh, also we've seen, certainly in the trauma arena, in, in the history of you know, the city of Miami back in the 80s, everybody jumping into the game and spending an incredible amount of resources um, you know, looking at the map of your paper from figure one, so people actually get the article, you see, like, as you point out, the very east, eastern half of the country, you see 
you know, your regional centers are reasonably dense, but as you move westward, you have these large gaps uh, in the in the network. Um, and that's where I would imagine, particularly things that are time-sensitive like MIs and strokes, you've got tremendous delays. And I would imagine your transfer systems there have to be really hardwired because I think to use your expression for the manuscript, there's not a lot of, not a lot of time to negotiate the transfer process. You know, I think you're absolutely correct, and there, there are clearly places where this is going to be challenging. You know, I guess I hear what you're saying about competition, and I think the reality is patients are uh, hospitals. Excuse me. The reality is hospitals are competing right now, and if you watch TV at night, I get barraged by the different Detroit area hospitals telling me that theirs is the best chance, the best place to get your care for whatever high margin procedure it is. What I don't see them as ever showing me the data. And what I imagine is a world in which we make the data on our actual performance sufficiently visible in a fair and scientifically rigorous way, and then people don't compete on who's got the best spokesperson or who's got the shiniest ad man, but they instead we try to have people compete on who's able to provide the best care for patients. Yeah. And it feels like if you can change the competition from I've got the best cafeteria with the best Starbucks to I've got a lower 30-day mortality, that's science helping drive behavior in a way that's useful. It's a fascinating topic. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to talk about? You know, I, I think the, the piece is intended to function at a couple levels. On one hand, it's clearly intended to be kind of a theoretical piece that lays out an agenda for how we think about the future of research and quality improvement um, and what's the right mental model. And it tries to move us away from some of these kind of simple, military, highly systematized models to what the world actually looks like for people trying to transfer a patient. But it also tries to open a conversation about how we can use transfers as a part of our quality improvement system um, and take responsibility at a local level for where I send patients or how able to receive patients I am and try to put that transfers, take them out of the bureaucracy realm and into the professional responsibility realm because they have consequences for patients. And the pieces in critical care medicine in part to help have us ask, how can we do this even better? Well, it was a fascinating read, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you joined me today on iCritical Care. I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jeff. We've been talking to Dr. Theodore Iwashina from the University of Michigan about his article entitled The Incomplete Infrastructure for Interhospital Patient Transfer. I think this is an interesting manuscript for uh, clinical uh, critical care providers at all levels uh, and at all centers uh, because it discusses the daily challenges that we have in identifying patients who need to be transferred to higher levels of care, uh, how those uh, transfers are negotiated, and how uh, they're executed. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org forward slash iCriticalCare. For more episodes or search SCCM in iTunes. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Aspira Incorporated is the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Aspira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.